0: As we were singing that uh, song, that last chorus together, I was reminded of this pastor that we um, met with when we were up in Oregon, and was faithfully pastoring this small little church there on the coast. And, and again, in a very the only other church in town is was some kind of um, uh, I can't remember how he described it, but it was kind of like a druid priest kind of guy that the big thing of the year, the big annual event was the pet blessing, and everyone would come out of the woodwork to get their pet blessed by this guy, and they loved him, but a complete apostate, and uh, that was the only other church, and he was telling us that they never closed church the entire uh, pandemic, and he just talked to the chief of police in this little town and said, hey, most of our people are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they know where they're going, and they want to meet for church. And so we're going to meet for church. And the police officer said, fine with me. (laughs) So they just met. And uh, he has a pretty strong statement that uh, I was really challenged by that he put on his website that basically said, hey, where in the Bible are elders ever given permission to tell their people they can't gather to worship, they can't sing, um, they can't, uh, you know, celebrate uh, communion together. And so uh, he, uh, he took a strong stand. I think we all kind of uh, appreciated the stand that uh, Grace Community Church took, right, in California. He was even challenging them, and then when then when they shut down for about five or six weeks, saying, hey, why are you guys closed? This is how extreme he was uh, in his commitment that, hey, the church is the church, and uh, we got to do what we got to do, and to be who God calls us to be, and so I appreciated his passion, and uh, it was really challenging for me to think that through, and uh, we had a sweet time of fellowship together, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, made me think as we were singing, thank the Lord um, that we can sing, amen, and uh, praise God that uh, we can do that uh, here uh, in Texas, and so, well, I want to t- thank um, Kyle in particular for uh, filling the pulpit here while I was gone, and I was so thankful that uh, he was able to uh, share his heart, what God laid on his heart this summer for the students, this, this series on the this, this, this sinfulness of sin, and it's such a critical subject. I'm really glad that our entire church got exposed to that. And I know you guys appreciated that. It was a joy to listen to that via live stream. And then also so grateful for Mike Goins uh, filling in when Chris Starr got sick and uh, we were scrambling around trying to figure out what to do because Kyle was going to be at Regen. And so Mike Goins, Rookie Preacher of the Year, what do you think, huh? I was like, whoa, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And uh, anyway, that was a huge blessing to have Mike minister the word to us. I know you guys were blessed as I was, but um, this morning... I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, which is a book that I taught years ago uh, on Wednesday night, and every once in a while, the Lord brings my mind back to a particular uh, section of this, what, what really is kind of a mysterious book, um, and, and some might even question why or how it even got into the Bible, because it's, it's pretty depressing uh, on some level, uh, if you don't know the whole context and the background, and... Yet there's some there's some nuggets in here uh, that really just leap off the page, and I think that uh, we can benefit greatly from. And so I want to take us back to Ecclesiastes chapter five this morning and look at verses one through seven. And again, if if you're familiar with uh, Ecclesiastes at all, I, I'm assuming that you'll remember this text. You're familiar with this text. Um, it, it's a very memorable um, uh, passage of Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1, this is the words of Solomon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring a matter up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Father, we come to you fearfully and reverently this morning particularly as we approach your word because we know that you speak to us through this book and you have a desire to communicate to us this morning from these verses truth that we need for our lives, truth that may require us to repent and change, truth that might provide comfort and encouragement and hope for us. But we know ultimately the truth of your word always conforms us more to your image and to, like, to the likeness of Christ. And so as we look at this uh, somewhat odd passage um, in this somewhat strange book that your spirit would illuminate us to understand what these verses mean and how they apply to our lives today so that we could be more of who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently read a profound quote by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author named Annie Dillard. Never heard of her before, to be honest with you. I have no clue where she's at spiritually. But I'm frankly shocked by what she said. Quote, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? Well, that'll get your attention. Let me read that again. Why do people in church, she's talking to us, about us, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute, i.e. of God? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blindly invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Are you awake yet? In other words, we shouldn't come to church nonchalantly or unthinkingly like happy-go-lucky tourists on some leisurely excursion. We must beware of the dangers involved in entering the presence of a holy God without considering the consequences and taking the necessary precautions. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson suggested that churches post warning signs outside their buildings like they do outside of nuclear power plants. Danger. Danger. Enter at your own risk. What do you think? Should we put some of those signs out front as you're walking in? Danger, enter at your own risk. Well, this imagery of crash helmets and life preservers and being lashed or tied to something is fresh on my mind, and perhaps maybe that's why this quote resonated with me so much because we just had the opportunity to go whitewater rafting in Washington. Um, Our family has gone rafting before on previous vacations, but this time it was just Jacob and me, and we tend to be uh, more adventuresome than the rest of the family, and so we tried something a little bit more challenging. We found a a river that had class three and four rapids with the option of going over a class five waterfall, which was advertised, and I quote, as a heart-pumping vertical plunge off one of the tallest commercially raftable waterfalls in the country, They had me at heart pumping. And the day before, it was no coincidence that we saw a sticker on a van that said this, and I pointed it out to our family. I said, look at that, and it said, bad decisions make good stories. And so we took that as a word from the Lord, and we signed the waiver form acknowledging the risk involved in Participating in this activity, and that the rafting company was not responsible if we got injured or died. Little did I know Kelly was actually praying that specifically, that we would not get injured or die uh, while we were gone. But after sitting through the safety briefing, we were given a wetsuit and booties, uh, a splash guard, and a helmet. And Jacob and I immediately realized this was going to be a next level experience because we had never had to wear any of that kind of stuff on any of our previous rafting trips. Um, and perhaps part of the reason was the water temperature was a refreshing 42 degrees in that river. And when you hit that first rapid and it splashed up in your face, you were awake. Let's just say that. You knew you were there. Um, you had arrived. And so um, when they asked the, the, asked for volunteers to sit in, in, front, in the front of the raft, I, I quickly raised my hand, because, of course you want to get your money's worth. And I didn't want the two little kids that were in our raft to be up there. And so I kind of just was selfish. Jacob was very kind and gracious and didn't, you know, reach out. I I know he wanted to, but he didn't. He was more Christ-like than me. I just said, we'll go in the front. And um, so anyway, uh, we had a blast paddling down the river. And as we approached the waterfall, which by design was the climax of the trip, our our God began to explain to us how dangerous this was. And really said everything he could possibly say to scare us out of doing it. Um, And so he proceeded to paint the worst case scenario that if we fell out of the boat, here we are just floating down this little nice part of the river, right? Getting ready to go over the waterfall. And he's painting this picture of if we fall out of the boat, he said you could be trapped under there for about 30 seconds. And what you have to do is just curl up in a ball and uh, relax and, and wait till it pops you back out to the surface. And I'm looking at Jacob, and he's looking at me. And um, anyway, the, he, he kind of has this, uh, had us start practicing and prove to me that you guys are ready to go over this thing, go you know, paddle hard and fall down on the thing, and there's a strap back here, grab this strap, and you got to all do this within a few seconds. Because this all happens really fast, apparently. At least that's what he's telling us. And so... After telling us all that stuff and after practicing a few times, he gave us one more chance to pull over the the raft on the side of the river and get out and walk around. And uh, Jacob and I looked at each other without saying anything and it's it's really, we were just kind of saying in our minds, let's send it, let's do it. Well, the next thing I know, the raft was crashing into the bottom of the falls and I was no longer in it. (laughs) And I was like, what just happened? And where am I? And thankfully, I realized that I was still holding on to the raft, okay, so I was, and my head was above the water, and that was a good thing, and so Jacob quickly uh, did what he had been instructed to do. If somebody goes overboard, you go after them, you reach out, right, and you haul them back into the boat, and so Jacob saved my life, and I'm so thankful, but if, if, you, if you're really interested, I've got that all chronicled on uh, pictures, because of course, they set up the camera person right below the falls to catch all the carnage that they knew was gonna be happening, that if you wanted to take a memory home, you could. And so we did, and so anyway. But like the Sigar said, bad decisions make good stories, right? And the point of that story is that Solomon, who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, was like our raft guide in this text because he's warning us about the risk. Involved in carelessly and foolishly entering God's house. The most foolish thing that any of us could ever do is to flippantly play in the presence of God. Someone wisely quipped that we humans worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Notice in this text, three times the word fool is used. In verse 1, he talks about the sacrifice of fools. In verse 3, he says the voice of a fool, right, comes through many words. And then in verse 4, he says he takes no delight in fools. So again, this is uh, in the section of the Old Testament we call wisdom literature, right? Right? where there's the foolish man and the wise man. And so here the, Solomon is giving us some sage wisdom regarding how we should act when we come into the presence of God. And Warren Wearsby, I think, really captures the, 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 the um, I guess, the context of this, the historical context in, in these words. He said this in his commentary. He said that Solomon, in his quest for meaning and satisfaction in life, and that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, where do you find true meaning and happiness and satisfaction in life, and Solomon was on a hunt for that, but he had visited the courtroom, the marketplace, the highway, and the palace, and now he paid a visit to the temple, that magnificent building whose construction he had supervised, right? Solomon built the first temple. He watched the worshipers come and go, praising God, praying, sacrificing, and making vows, and he noted that many of them were not at all sincere in their worship, and they left the sacred precincts in worse spiritual condition than when they had entered. Their acts of worship were perfunctory, insincere, and hypocritical. We know based on a couple of incidences in Scripture, that God takes worship very seriously. And so should we. Nadab and Abihu, you may remember them. This is the sons of Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10. They offered some strange fire, something that the Lord had not told them to do. This is Leviticus chapter 10. Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offering strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and therefore all the people, uh, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent." And then, of course, we have in the New Testament the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I assume you're familiar with that story as the the church was just starting off. Uh, They were all raising money to support one another, and um, they were selling their property and giving the money to the church, and and, uh, they had this big fundraiser, and Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife, uh, sold some property, and they agreed to tell the leaders of the church that they had sold it for this price when they'd really sold it for this price. And uh, you know know what happens when you lie in church, right? You get struck dead. (laughs) That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They both dropped dead in the presence of the Lord because they lied. And it says that fear came over the entire church and everyone in the community that heard about it. So both of these acts of judgment took place, interestingly, at the, at the launch of a new era of worship for God's people. The, the Ananias and, excuse me, the, the Nadab and Abihu incident happened when the tabernacle was being inaugurated. And the Ananias and Sapphira incident happened when the church was being established. But the point is that both of these incidents show how passionate God is about being approached with fear and reverence. And sadly, I think few people approach God that way these days. Derek Kidner, who's one of my favorite commentators in the Old Testament, said this this writer's target. In other words, who is he talking to? Who is Solomon addressing here? Is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he's volunteered to do. If that's not convicting enough, listen to what Philip Ryken said in commentating on this passage. And I quote, he says, in other words, the preacher is speaking to just about everyone who ever goes to church. His words are not for people who never go to church at all. His exhortations are for people who do go to church, but sometimes find it hard to pay attention, whose thoughts wander when they pray, and who are full of good intentions about serving God but have trouble following through. This text, he says, is for people who know they need to get involved, but usually come up with some excuse for not joining a ministry right now. They've started a serious program for personal Bible study several dozen times, but have never finished. They try to pay attention in church, but usually spend half their time thinking about the upcoming week. So I ask you, does any of that sound uncomfortably familiar? (laughs) Does that sound like your experience ever in church? If so, you need to heed the warnings in these seven verses. And so I think what's going on here is is that Solomon was suggesting five ways to avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God. Okay? That's what I think this passage is about. Five ways to avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God. And so I've got those... uh, five ways listed out. If you got a copy of the sermon outline, hopefully you can follow along and maybe fill in some notes along the way. But let's look at these five ways to avoid making a fool of ourselves in the presence of God. Number one, we need to gear up. We need to gear up. Notice the first phrase there, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. To, to gear up for something, right? Right? Is to prepare or to get ready for some event or for uh, some action. We were gearing up for that waterfall, for that drop, and that we were preparing ourselves. We were getting ready. So, how do we do that when it comes to worshiping the Lord? He says, "Guard your steps as you go to the house of God." Solomon was likely referring to going to the temple that he had built in Jerusalem. And he was emphasizing here how important it is to properly prepare yourself to to enter the presence of God. I think there's too much of a casual come-as-you-are approach to worship in the church today. That's a very common way for for people to, or I should say churches, to kind of even advertise themselves, hey, come to our casual worship service. You, you'll feel right at home. You'll feel very comfortable and come as you are. And I, I get the heart of come as you are. It's like you don't have to clean up your life necessarily before you come to Jesus, right? You just come as you are. Jesus will take you as you are and uh, he'll save you where you're at, right? But, but I think it kind of unfortunately gets um, misunderstood that, hey, I'm just going to come as I am and just kind of kick back and relax and hang out at church and it's not that big of a deal, And I think you would agree with me that there seems to be little or no emphasis in churches today on the need to live a life of obedience to the Lord. And there's just a, 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 just a general lack of reverence for the Lord and what Solomon, the, 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 the phrase that Solomon uses here I think is a description of a lot of what's going on in churches today and, and they're offering the what? What does it say there? The sacrifice of fools. This is foolish worship. And we have some examples of that in Scripture. The, of course, the story of Cain and Abel. God made it very clear to Cain And Abel, what they, what they were to bring as an offering to the Lord. And in Genesis chapter four, verse three, it says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Cain had been foolish. He had not brought what the Lord had requested Saul gave a sacrifice of fools. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, remember he was commanded by Samuel, ultimately by the Lord, to destroy the Amalekites and wipe them out completely, and he partially obeyed. He destroyed some of them, but he let the people pillage some of the flocks and save some of the sheep, and when Samuel confronted him, he said, "Oh, I was just uh, you know, saving those so I could offer them to the Lord as a sacrifice." And Samuel said this in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, God would have much rather had you just obey him. Forget the the sheep. Sacrifice. Just, Just do what I tell you to do. Another sacrifice of fools would be the prophets of Baal in first uh, kings eighteen and i 'm again assuming you 're familiar <clears throat> with that account where um, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal had a smackdown on Mount Carmel right they, they, they went toe to toe to prove who was the true God was it was, was, was it Baal or was it jehovah God and uh, they both took a bull and Put it on the altar and call down their God to ignite that sacrifice. And of course, you remember the story the prophets of Baal spent all day jumping around, cutting themselves, you know, and nothing ever happened. It was a sacrifice of fools. So, all that to say is we need to approach God thoughtfully, we need to approach God carefully, and we need to prepare our hearts and our minds. Before we come to church, if we were to liken this as the house of the Lord, I mean, this, this um, message applies to our uh, any time we enter the presence of the Lord, whether that's um, in the morning, when we have our quiet time, when we read His word, when we pray, whenever that might be, um, but he's particularly talking about coming to the house of the Lord. And so how can we prepare ourselves? How can we guard our steps, if you will, as we come to the house of the Lord? Some of you may remember uh, in the back of the the little book that we wrote together, the expository listening book, uh, there's an appendix that just kind of summarizes everything, and it's called A Quick Reference Guide for Listeners. And uh, this is what is written there. The following are some practical suggestions for individuals and families regarding your role as a listener in preaching that will help you... Get the most out of the sermons you hear. And so the first section is anticipation. And, and what is the, our responsibility before the word of God is preached? And there's some spiritual preparations and there's some physical preparations. So just for example, how can you prepare spiritually to come to the house of the Lord? Well, how about read your Bible and pray every day? That, that'll get your heart ready, right? If this is the only time that you enter the presence of the Lord is on Sunday mornings, it's probably not going to go so well. But if you're entering God's presence on a daily basis, on a regular basis, in in his word and in prayer, that will help prepare you uh, for our corporate times of worship. Men, we can lead our wives. We can lead our children in times of family worship. We can lead them into the presence of God through Bible reading, through prayer, or maybe even singing together as a family. On Saturday night or perhaps Sunday morning, uh, we can take time to get our hearts ready for worship. I think it's interesting that the Puritans, on the night before they would have communion, they would have a confession service to confess their sins on Saturday night so they were ready to come and take communion together. And so you can maybe read a portion of God's word that focuses on worshiping God, uh, maybe on personal cleansing from sin. You can thank God that you can come boldly into his presence to worship him through Christ, Uh, You could seek his forgiveness for any sins that you failed maybe to confess or repent of during the week. Get your heart right before the Lord. uh, Express to him that you understand that your best efforts to worship him uh, are are really uh, nowhere near what he deserves and ask him to help you worship him wholeheartedly in spirit and truth. Ask him to make your heart soft and receptive to his word so it'll take root in your life. Um, Ask them to illuminate your mind, to understand the word. Um, Pray for those who are going to be leading the the worship time, uh, those who will be leading the singing and the prayers and and, and, and the preaching. Pray for them that God would empower them. Um, Take the initiative to make things right with other people. Um, Never come to church at odds with one of your family members, your wife, your husband, your kids, your brother, sister, your parents, right? I mean, Sunday morning is like a weekly accountability for our family. And I hope it is for yours as well, because I'm not about to get up here and be sideways with my wife or with my kids or something, because they're sitting there going, yeah, whatever, you big hypocrite. And that's just going to really not go well in their hearts in receiving the word of God. And I don't want to do that to them. And I don't want to be that hypocrite, right? I want to practice what I preach. And so make sure you're taking initiative to be right with your family members. um, Be right with other members of the church. If something, if you get cross-threaded with somebody during the week, man, just get that right so that you don't have to avoid them at church on Sunday morning. Isn't that the worst? You come to church and you, you, you have to avoid someone? God never intended us to have to avoid our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so resolve those conflicts. I think that's how you can spiritually prepare for coming to worship. It's very distracting to worship the Lord when you're trying to worship the Lord when just a few rows in front of you or behind you or over there, there's somebody that you're bitter at. It just doesn't go real well, right, when you're trying to worship the Lord. And then just come to church with a spirit of anticipation, just expecting God to, to meet with you and to speak to you and uh, through his word in, in, in a way that's gonna, that's gonna just transform your life. So those are just some spiritual things I think that you can do as you take steps towards Sunday morning worship. And then how about physical preparations? Is there, what can you do physically, practically? Well, make it a habit to be home on Saturday night. We always talk about this, you know, Saturday or Sunday morning starts what? Saturday night. Um, In other words, sometimes we we do things or we watch things or we read things or we we go places or we get home really late and so we're tired and it's hard to, we get to church and we're sleepy and right and or we're distracted by whatever else we just did. Um, And so be careful not to do anything or watch anything or or read anything that's going to cause some lingering distractions Uh, For you the next day. Uh, How about this? Get things ready Saturday night to alleviate the typical Sunday morning rush, especially if you've got kids, little kids, right? And get all that stuff out there, get the diaper bag going, get the sippy cups where they need to be, and you know, all that kind of stuff, just so it's not uh, chaotic on Sunday morning. Ladies, maybe you might want to pick out your outfit the night before so that your husband's not in the car eh, eh, waiting because you, you tried on three dresses or something, right? Because you just couldn't decide. And you know, I know, I, I know you, can't, you have to wait for the day to know what mood you're in, right? I understand that, okay? Um, but just a suggestion, and, uh, and not that guys can't be helped with that as well, right? Some of us who are more particular about how we dress, guys, uh, think ahead. Don't make last-minute decisions here. Get a good night's sleep. So you're, you're sharp, you're energetic to worship the Lord, to listen to what he has to say to you. Um, if you're into breakfast, eat a good one so your stomach's not growling, you know, around about this time. Um, when you're thinking about, man, what's for lunch? You know, how long is this guy going to go? I'm hungry. Um, work hard at helping each other get ready. Again, I already mentioned this. Guys, don't sit in the car laying on the horn waiting for your wife to get, you know, herself and all the kids ready. And, and then give her some self-righteous speech on the way to church about her punctuality, you know, and how we're late once again. Well, help, help out. Um, seek to establish a, and maintain a godly atmosphere on the way to church. Sometimes that's when the wheels fall off. You got everybody in the car, and you're all frazzled and frustrated, and then World War III breaks out in the car, uh, either in the front seat between mom and dad or in the back seat between the kids, Right? And uh, you just say, and then you come in, you drive into the church, right? And you open the doors and it's the parking lot miracle. that everybody all of a sudden gets saved before they open the doors. Oh, hi, how are you? Yes, good to see you, brother. Yeah, deal with that on the way to church. Come, how about this? Come earlier, come 10 minutes earlier. I'm speaking, preaching to the choir right now, me. Arrive at church 10 minutes early instead of 10 minutes late, right? That kind of... Come in all frazzled, sit down, catching your breath, you're sweating, you're whatever, right? Come sit and enjoy getting your heart prepared uh, by being here a bit early. So, again, those are just ways to gear up, to guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Uh, secondly, you need to listen up. You need to listen up. Notice he says, and draw near for what purpose? To listen. Rather than offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So, in other words, when you come into the presence of God, you need to pay attention and obey what God says. I think this is an interesting fact in, in the Bible here that there is an inseparable relationship between listening and obeying. And, And throughout Scripture, listening is equated with obeying. And in many passages, a direct connection is clearly made between listening and obeying. For example, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. What? The Lord your God is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Luke eleven twenty eight. Uh, this is the, the verse sometimes if I sign a copy of expository listening, I put this verse in there, Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. It's not enough just to hear it. Well, that was another good sermon. So? So what? What are you gonna do about it, right? Um, so listening and obeying are, are like two sides of the same coin. They're, they're synonymous terms. In fact, there's a, there's a direct lexical link between the words hear and obey in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament word for hear is shema. We just read that here, O Israel. And it's, by the way, it's, it's the same word for obey. There's no separate word for obey in the Old Testament. It's shema. It means hear slash obey. The word For here in the New Testament is akuo, and the word for obey is hupa-akuo, which you can tell just by the sound of it, it's a derivative of the word for hear, which literally means to hear under. So the implication is that, that in God's mind, hearing and obeying are one and the same. I love the example of what Eli told Samuel when he thought he heard Eli calling out to him, Samuel, Samuel, in the middle of the night, and he kept jumping up and coming to Eli, saying, what do you want? And after a few times, Eli realized, oh, apparently God's trying to reach out to Samuel here, trying to speak to him. And so he said to to Samuel, young Samuel, he said, okay, next time you hear your name called, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, which I think is a great prayer, that all of us should pray as we come to church every Sunday or as we're sitting here, maybe as the preacher is walking up to the pulpit, that we silently say, I've I got a few things I pray as I'm standing there and as I'm coming up here uh, regarding my role as the preacher, but I think one of the things you could pray is speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm ready to hear you speak to me, God, through the word of God this morning, through your word. You've heard this before. There's a reason we've been given two ears and one mouth because God wants us to listen twice as much as we talk. So when you come before the Lord, listen up, and then right on the heels of that is, thirdly, third way that we cannot make a fool out of ourselves in the presence of God is to shut up. I know, sorry kids, I told you not to say that. Um, that's, that's, that's off limits in our house, we don't tell each other to shut up. But in this case, it's It's biblical. Okay, we need to shut up when we're in the presence of God. Look at verse two. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So the presence of God is no place for compulsive talking. You're not gonna be heard for your verbosity or much speaking if you're babbling on relentlessly. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. And then, of course, Matthew 15, 18, Jesus said the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. So be careful what you say because your tongue is the tattletale of your heart. Every time our mouths are open, our hearts are on display. And a few sincere words are better than a lot of insincere words. Psalm 46:10, be still. And what? And know that I am God. But don't miss that. Be still and know that I'm God. Isaiah 29:13. the Lord said, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In other words, it was just mindless repetition. They were just kind of going through the motions. They were just kind of saying the words. Habakkuk 2, 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Sometimes the best prayer time might be just you just being there and and saying nothing. Just being quiet in the presence of the Lord and and honoring Him in your heart and your mind, reverencing Him and fearing Him and exalting Him. So ask yourself do you really mean what you say when you pray, when you sing? Do you you sing? We just sang a number of songs. We normally sing three or four songs every Sunday. Do you actually think about what you're saying? And have you ever gotten caught off guard as you're singing a song and all of a sudden you you see the next line coming and going, whoa, I don't know if I can sing that. Because I don't know that that's true of my life right now. Or do you just kind of mindlessly sing it and kind of move on? No, this is like you're dealing you're letting the word of christ richly dwell within you when you're singing right we're being encouraged and admonished by the word of god that's what it says in colossians 3:16 as we're singing james 1:19 everyone must be quick to hear and what slow to speak one of the things i miss about not having my brother tom Walter is on our elder team anymore is our times of prayer together when we would get on our knees and we still do that every time we gather we try to devote some time to prayer and whenever it was Tom's turn to pray it got real quiet and there was almost an awkward silence it was almost like hey Tom it's your turn hey Tom go come on you're up man but there was a, a hesitation to, 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 to even put a word or a sentence together to address the holy God of the universe. And there was a holy hush that would come over our elder meetings at that moment. And there was a few times I wanted to just sneak out because I felt like I was intruding on Tom's time with the Lord. And, uh, but it was so precious and special. I think that's the idea here. Let your words be few. Verse 3, for the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. So generally speaking, fools are usually talkative. They, they, um, they have a hyperactive mouth, which often says things it shouldn't say. And in the same way, there's a close connection between what we think about during the day and the, the dreams we have at night. I think there's something going on in the subconscious there. We oftentimes dream about things that right, we, we're concerned about or we think about. And in the same way, there's a close connection between stupidity and verbosity. The more you talk, the more likely you are to say something stupid, in other words. And that's why I love Proverbs 10:19. when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And the other proverb that says this, right? Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. So when you're in God's presence, what are we so, supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be listening, or excuse me, listening up, shutting up, and, and we're, we shouldn't be daydreaming. We, shouldn't, uh, we need to set aside all of our concerns, our anxieties, our pressures, our preoccupations, right? And, and just really uh, focus on the Lord. The fourth thing that we need to do or can do to avoid making a fool out of ourselves in the presence of God is to to pay up, to pay up. Notice verse four, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Talking about paying your vows promptly. In other words, don't, don't say something if you don't mean it or don't intend to follow through on it. We live in a day of empty promises and shallow commitments. In fact, I typically include that verse, verse um, 5, in, in, in whenever I do a wedding ceremony. In fact, I quoted it up in Washington when I performed uh, Grant and Carly's wedding. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. In other words, what you're about to do is you're going to make a promise before God and these witnesses, and God expects you to keep your promise to one another, like He keeps His promises, what? to you. God takes vows very seriously. They have serious implications. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is the law of God given to the nation of Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So in other words, if you're like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and you say, God, if you provide me a child, I will dedicate that child to you, I promise. And when God blessed her and opened her womb and gave her Samuel, what did she do? She fulfilled that vow, and she gave Samuel up to the work of the Lord. Another example, I'm not sure if it's a good example or not, but it because it involved a rash vow, and that was Jephthah in Judges 11. Jephthah was one of the judges who was fighting against the Ammonites and trying to deliver the Israelites during the the, the period of the Judges, and he said uh, to the Lord as he headed out to battle, Lord, if you give me victory, the first thing that walks out of my house when I come home, I'll dedicate them to you. I'll offer them as a burnt sacrifice. I don't know what he was thinking was gonna run out. Maybe it was the cat and he wanted to get rid of it. I'm not sure, but... This was the excuse, right, to get rid of the cat. Um, So anyway, he goes, God blesses him, he defeats the Ammonites, he comes home, and who should come run out the door to see him? It's his beautiful daughter, his only child. And he's like, honey, I'm so sorry, I made a vow to the Lord, and I have to sacrifice you to him. I know it sounds strange, don't ask me about the theology of it, okay? Okay. It's, it's just there. I'm just telling you what happened. It's the narrative in the Old Testament. And so he let his daughter go off and mourn her virginity for several months and came home. And apparently, it's, we would assume, offered her up as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Stupid vow, rash vow. But he was trying to be a man of his word. And I say that because I think our tendency is to strike bargains with God when we're in a tight spot. Isn't that true? When we find ourselves in a death, desperate situation, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want, right? I'll serve you forever. But as soon as the crisis is over, we forget that vow or we don't follow through on that vow. I'm sure some of you could raise your hand and say, yep, been there, done that, um, made some promises to God. He, he bailed me out of a situation and I've really never followed through on my part. So Solomon's saying here, don't try to worm out of any decision or commitment that you made to God. And the messenger here, it says, do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. That's probably a reference to the priest, since broken vows were to be confessed before him, according to Leviticus chapter 5, or to a prophet, both were called messengers. Um, They're the ones that held people accountable to their vows, And so he's saying, listen, don't let your mouth lead you into sin by unfulfilled vows. And don't try to get out of a promise that you made by saying you really didn't mean it. I love what Psalm 15 says about those who may abide in your tent. The the psalmist asked the question, this is David, oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And he goes on to list characteristics of people that can abide in the presence of God and have an intimate relationship with him. And this is one of the requirements. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, you follow through on your commitments even when they hurt, even when they cost you something. Psalm 66, verse 13: I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, with which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. The psalmist followed through on his vows. And then finally, and, and quickly, one more way that we can avoid making a fool of ourselves and the friends of God is to look up, verse seven. This is probably the most important principle of all. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear. God, revere him, stand in awe of him, look up to him, as in other ways I, I, I look up to you, right? You say, I look up to someone, right? You respect them, you honor them, you revere them, you wanna please them, you wanna honor them, and of course, th- this whole concept of, or this um, idea of fearing God is a, is a theme weaved throughout this entire book And it climaxes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is to fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. We know the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 89, verse six, for who in the skies is comparable to the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. In other words, we need to take God seriously. Don't don't play games with the creator and the sustainer and the judge of the universe. He demands our utmost respect. He deserves our diligent obedience. Or maybe I should say it that way. He deserves our utmost respect and demands our diligent obedience. And when we fear God... We'll come into his presence ready to worship him. We'll listen to what he has to say to us. We'll be careful what we say to him and we'll give him what is due him and follow through on the promises that we made him. But fools, on the other hand, fail to worship God the way they should. They don't come prepared to worship Him. They don't hear or heed His word. They think that they can manipulate Him with their many words. They make empty promises to Him. They don't follow through on their commitments to Him. And it's all because they lack a healthy fear of God. And I was reminded this morning as I was preparing and thinking through this message that something that R.C. Sproul said years ago at a conference and somebody had asked him a question about the seeker-sensitive movement, seeker churches, and, and he said, you know, what's so mixed up about that whole thing is that, you know, these churches got started because they found out and that people in their community were bored of church. Um, it didn't seem relevant to their lives, and so they had to kind of recreate church Reimagine church and make it less boring and more relevant uh, for for the average person. And R.C. Sproul said, "You look in the Bible, and uh, anybody that ever came into the presence of God, there was all sorts of emotions. There, there was there was fear, there was uh, anguish, uh, there was rejoicing. There was some of them passed out. He said, but no one ever left the presence of God saying that was boring or that was an irrelevant experience." What's the problem? People don't view church as coming into the presence of God. And that's what we're doing here. And I hope you would agree that you would never leave church thinking to yourself, well, that was boring or that was irrelevant to my life. Because if you think that or say that, then you miss the whole point of why we're here. We are here to be in the presence of God. And by the way, he is the seeker, not us, right? Isn't that what Jesus said um, in John chapter four when he was evangelizing the woman at the well? He said this, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's asking him this question and this is what Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. The salvation for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, when we think about putting together a church service here at Lakeside Bible Church, we don't think about what you want, we think about what God wants. We don't think about what the community wants, we think about what God wants. And as long as we're we're doing what God wants, I think it'll be impactful for those of us who are saved and those who still need to get saved. The good news is, for us today, the only way we can worship the Lord the way Solomon is talking about here is because of Jesus. The only way for us to be a true worshiper of God and have a genuine meaningful relationship with God is through his son, Jesus. Let me close with this quote from Philip Ryken. And this is just where we gotta go back to Jesus here. Okay, this is not a, another you know, five check marks on your to-do list to leave here and gear up and listen up and shut up and whatever else I told you to do, look up, right? It's not just another to-do list. Listen, whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word. When we consider the holiness of God and compare it with our own unholy worship, it is a wonder that any of us are still alive. Thank God for Jesus. It is not only his sufferings that save us, but also his obedience, including the perfect worship he offered to his father. Jesus died for all our sins, including all the sins we've committed in the very act of worshiping God. All of us have sinned on any given Sunday morning haven't we? We've not offered the worship worthy enough for the Lord. By faith in Christ, that perfect worship of Christ now belongs to us, as if we ourselves had offered it to God. Our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by the Son. When we know that even our worship is forgiven, that's a profound thought, even our worship is forgiven, then we can approach God with joyful confidence rather than saying, if I worship the right way, then God will accept me. We say, I'm already accepted through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and now it is my privilege to worship God the way he wants to be worshiped, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Christ made a way for us to worship you. You've been seeking worshipers For all eternity, those who would worship you in spirit and truth, thank you for choosing us to be uh, one of those worshipers. And Lord, I pray we do it in in a way that would be pleasing to you. Help us to take into account what we've heard this morning about ways to approach your presence. May we apply that this week as we enter your presence on a daily basis, as we spend time in your word, as we pray, or as we gather together as a family for worship time uh, in our homes. Uh, Maybe as we sit over a meal with a a fellow brother or sister in Christ for discipleship, Lord, as we enter into your presence, that we would be uh, like this. And then when we gather again next Sunday, Lord, may we come ready and geared up and prepared uh, to be in your presence. And uh, we know that it will be anything but boring and it will be anything but irrelevant. We know it is what we need more than anything else. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.